The following is intended only for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Ladies and gentlemen, thrill seekers and believers in the supernatural, welcome to the spine-tingling grand finale of our Halloween special on the Anthology of Horror podcast. As you fucking know, I'm your host and narrator, Springheel Jack. And let me tell you, 13 episodes of Halloween Tales on the day of Halloween have left me a bit hoarse and goddamn fucking exhausted. In this grand finale, we're going back to our roots with more hair-raising stories from around the world. From eerie legends to terrifying folklore, these tales have chilled us to the bone throughout the season. But, all good things must come to an end, and this episode marks the conclusion of our Halloween special. 13 episodes on Halloween Day, 30 for the rest of the month, that's more than enough to give any of you guys the creeps at some point. But before we bid adieu to the season, don't forget to check out the Scary Jerry Extravaganza on Demented Darkness. More spine-tingling content awaits you there. So the frights continue, even as I take a little bit of a break. So sit tight, embrace the unknown, and join us for one last Halloween hurrah. This first one is called The New Mother from England. When Queen Victoria ruled England, there were two little sisters whose real names are forgotten. But the older was nicknamed Blue Eyes for the rich blue color of her eyes. Her sister was called Red Skirt because she always wore dresses of that shade. They lived with their mother in a cottage in a seaside village. Their father was a sailor visiting faraway lands. Their mother always told the sisters not to talk to strangers, but one day, as Blue Eyes and Red Skirt crossed the village square, they met an old woman sitting on a bench. She wore a black bonnet and white gloves, and her face was powdered as white as a ghost. Her black skirt reached to the ground, and it crinkled and rustled like stiff tissue paper when she moved. Her eyes were hidden behind spectacles of thick, smoked glass. Come here, she invited, in a voice like pages turning in a very old book. At first, the girls held back, remembering their mother's warning. But when the woman took a music box of carved and polished pearl wood from her big black silk purse, blue eyes and red skirt stepped closer to look. The woman's gloved fingers worked stiffly as she turned a key in the back of the music box. When she lifted the lid, tinkling music played, and a tiny carved boy and girl popped up and danced. The boy's painted mouth was sad. The little wooden girl had a single crystal teardrop under each eye. But blue eyes and red skirt were delighted. They laughed and clapped and begged the old woman to give them the music box. I will give it to you, she said, but only if you're very naughty. Come back tomorrow and tell me how wicked you've been. Then the music wound down and the wooden boy and the wooden girl stopped dancing and the woman put the wonderful music box back into her purse. Now give me a kiss and run on home, she said in her papery voice. 
The girls each kissed a cheek, finding that the woman's face powder tasted like dust. Then they ran home. That evening, blue eyes and red skirts were awfully naughty. When their mother asked if they had spoken to anybody, the girls lied, saying nothing about the old woman in black skirts or her music box. Then they shouted and spilled their food and scribbled on their books and refused to go to bed. Their mother was very upset, and she said, If you keep on being naughty, I will have to go away and leave you in the care of a new mother with glass eyes and a wooden tail. But the little girls did not take her warning to heart. They thought only of the Pearwood music box that would be their reward for such mischief-making. The next day, the sisters got up very early and hurried to the village square. It was there that they met the old woman in black. Again, she played the music box, and the tiny, sad-faced boy and teary-eyed girl danced as before. Did you do what you were supposed to do, the woman asked, as soon as the music stopped. We were very naughty, Blue Eyes cried. Yes, said Red Skirts. Can we have the music box now? First, tell me what you did, the woman demanded. She leaned forward with a sound like a door creaking. Taking turns, the girls told what they had done. Oh no, said the woman, you were only a little naughty. You must be far worse than that. Now give me a kiss and run home. This time her cheeks smelled like the parlor table when their mother polished it with lemon and beeswax. All day long, blue eyes and red skirts were as naughty as they possibly could be. They threw their teacups on the floor and tore their clothes and walked in the mud up to their knees and pulled up all the flowers in the garden, and then they let the canary out of its cage so that it flew away. Whatever has gotten into both of you, their mother asked. Have you spoken to anybody? Oh no, the two girls answered as one. Then their mother said sadly, Children, you must not be so naughty. If you do not stop, I shall have to go away and then you will have a new mother with glass eyes and a wooden tail. But blue eyes and red skirts thought she was only telling stories to make them obey, so they paid her no mind. The next day they got up even earlier and ran to meet the mysterious woman in black, but when they told her what they had done, she scolded them. You haven't been nearly naughty enough. You must be really bad if you want any part of my music box. I will give you one more chance. They could not see her eyes behind her smoky spectacles, but her mouth was stern and no longer smiling. When they kissed her cheeks, the woman's skin felt dreadfully cold and hard. Afraid of losing the music box, blue eyes and red skirt dashed home. This time they broke the chairs and smashed the china and tore their clothes to pieces and whipped the dog and even pinched their mother on the ass. At last their mother said sadly, Blue eyes and red skirts, you have been so naughty that I will surely have to go away and leave you in the care of a new mother with glass eyes and a wooden tail. Her daughters did not heed her. The only thought of the prize that would soon be theirs. Tomorrow, when we have to go and get the music box, we'll be good again, they told each other. The next morning, blue eyes and red skirts got up the earliest yet and went to meet the old woman. She patted the silent music box on her lap and asked them, have you earned this? Oh yes, the girls boasted. Then they eagerly told her all the wicked things that they had done. The old woman laughed and clapped her hands with a sound like two sticks hitting together. Yes, she agreed, you have been really naughty, and now your mother has gone far, far away to find your father. Soon you will have a new mother with glass eyes and a wooden tail, and the music box too. But blue eyes and red skirt had grown frightened. The music box no longer mattered. 
They ran home, but they found that their mother was away. Hoping that she had merely gone to the market, they mopped the floor, polished the silver, and tried to undo their mischief. As evening fell, they put the kettle on the fire to fix tea for their mother's homecoming. While they waited for the water to boil, they heard a loud knock at the door. "'Who's there?' called Blue Eyes. "'Mother,' a soft voice replied. "'Open the door. I forgot my latchkey.' Something about the voice did not seem right to Blue Eyes, but Redskirt cried, "'We thought you'd gone away,' and she lifted the latch and opened the door before her sister could stop her. There stood the old woman. She was so tall her bonnet almost touched the top of the door, and her black skirts filled it from side to side. Her smoky spectacles were as big as saucers, and her black silk purse looked immense. "'Where's our mother?' asked Blue Eye. "'Because you were so naughty, your old mother had to go away,' said the woman. "'I am your new mother.' She walked heavily into the cottage, growing taller with each step. Now the top of her bonnet reached to the rafters. From beneath her monstrous black skirts came a strange thumping noise. "'Run away!' Blue Eyes yelled to Red Skirt. "'We will hide until our real mother comes home.' But suddenly, a wooden tail lashed out from under the black skirts and knocked them to the floor. When New Mother pulled off her spectacles, the flash of her glass eyes lit the room, so that Blue Eyes and Red Skirt clearly saw something round and dark coming for them. It was the mouth of New Mother's purse growing big enough to swallow them both. One morning, two little boys playing in the village square met a funny old woman in black skirts and cloudy glasses who called them to her side. At first they hung back, remembering how their mother had warned them against talking to strangers. But then the woman opened her black silk purse and took out a pearwood music box. When she lifted the lid, tinkling music played. And two tiny carved girls, one with a blue bead eyes and one with dainty red skirts, popped up and danced, and the boys were delighted. They begged, Can we have the music box? The woman smiled and asked, How naughty can you be? This next one is called Rakuro Kubi from Japan. More than 500 years ago, there was a samurai named Kwerio, who gave up the life of a warrior and put on the robes of a priest, but he kept alive within himself the heart of a samurai and scorned danger. Those were lawless times when a lone traveler was always in peril, even if he was a priest, but Kwerio would go anywhere to preach the holy teachings of Buddha. One evening, while Querio was crossing the mountains of a remote province, darkness overtook him when he was still far away from any village. He had resigned himself to sleeping under the stars when a man came along the road carrying an axe and a bundle of chopped wood. "'Good evening, sir,' said the woodcutter, bowing to Querio. "'I'm surprised to see a stranger on this road so late. Are you not afraid of things that haunt the dark?' "'My friend,' Querio responded cheerfully. I am only a poor wandering priest, but I am not the least afraid of goblins, and I find lonesome places ideal for meditation. You must be a brave man indeed, the peasant responded, but I can assure you this is a very dangerous region. Although my house is only a wretched hut, I beg you to come with me at once. Alas, I have no food to offer you, but there is at least a roof to shelter you. Querio gratefully accepted his modest offer. 
so the woodcutter guided him away from the main road and up a narrow path through a mountain forest. After a long time, the priest found himself upon a cleared space at the top of a hill, with the moon shining overhead. Before him was a thatched cottage, with paper lanterns glowing in each window. First the woodcutter showed Quario a shed behind the house. Here, bamboo pipes brought water from a nearby stream so the men washed their feet. This done, they entered the cottage. Inside, Quario found two men and two women warming their hands at the fire pit in the center of the room. All bowed to the priest and greeted him respectfully. There followed some polite conversation, and then the woodcutter showed Quario to a dark little side room where a sleeping mat and pillow awaited him. Promising to pray for them to repay their hospitality, the priest retired. The household settled into sleep, but Quario read the Holy Sutras by the light of the paper lantern. As the hour grew late, he became thirsty, remembering the clear running water that he saw outside by the shed, he decided to go and get a drink. To avoid disturbing the household, he gently pushed apart the sliding screens separating his room from the main chamber. By the light of his lantern, he saw five bodies upon sleeping mats, all headless. At first he thought that his hosts had been murdered, but a closer look showed no traces of violence or blood. Then he realized that this was a house of some Rokuro Kubi, demonic creatures whose heads left their bodies to hunt for food. He guessed that the heads had made their exit through the open smoke hole in the roof, and he knew that he was in great danger, since the creatures would devour any living thing, even a man, even a priest. Hearing no sound, Quario unbarred the main door. He knew that moving the bodies would confuse and distract the creatures, so he dragged them out and hid them in the bamboo thicket. Then he hurried towards the stand of cedars at the head of the path, but when he entered the grove he heard voices. Peering out from behind a tree trunk, he saw the heads bobbing and darting. They were eating worms and insects they found on the ground or in trees. How fat that priest is, cried the woodcutter's head. How good he will taste, though we cannot touch him when he is praying. He may have fallen asleep by now. Somebody go and see. The head of a young woman rose up and flitted bat-like towards the cottage. After a few minutes, she flew back crying, The priest is not there, and he has hidden our bodies. We must find him then, said the woodcutter, or we will die. When I see that priest, I will kill him. I will tear him. I will devour him. Suddenly the creature's eyes went wide, and he shouted to the others, There he is, hiding behind a tree. Shrieking, the five heads flew at Quario, but he had armed himself with a stout tree branch, and he had struck the heads as they came at him. With tremendous blows, he knocked them aside, but the buffeting only seemed to anger them more. They came for him again and again and again, their eyes burning, their sharp teeth clack-clacking. Though he wielded the branch as skillfully as he had once used a sword, the five heads were too much for him. Two of the heads clamped their jaws on the branch and gnawed it to pieces. With snapping jaws, the other three heads dived at him. He chopped at them with the sides of his hands, but each bit a mouthful of flesh off of him. So desperate to find shelter from the snapping teeth, Quario ran back towards the house, slapping and punching at his tormentors. At the entrance, he swung around and punched the woodcutter in the face, slamming the head into the one immediately behind him. Then he ducked inside the hut, pushing the door shut and barring it. He yanked on the cord that shut the smoke hole, but a moment later he heard the screaming heads chewing at the oiled paper that covered the windows. Quario looked around for a weapon but could see nothing, 
In an alcove, he found piles of clothes, coins, and jewelry that the Rokurokubi had taken from their victims. There was even a suit of armor and a sword. Querio snatched up the sword as ripping sounds followed by screeches warned him that the heads had chewed through the window coverings. To their dismay, they found that the priest had once again become a samurai. As the frenzied creatures flew at him, Querio's swords cut them to ribbons. At last, only the woodcutter's head was left. He had skillfully eluded the sword blade, managing to chew off several gobbets of Querio's flesh. Though he was in terrible pain, Querio stood his ground. When the howling Rikuro Kubi rushed at his face, he waited until the last possible moment, and then his sword flashed. The upper half of the creature's head, its eyes filled with rage, struck the wall. The teeth from the lower half clamped down onto the sleeve of Querio's robe, biting as if the cloth were skin. Instantly, Querio cut away the sleeve, then wrapped the snarling, snapping half-head in it and tied the bundle tight. When he had locked it in a wooden chest, he set fire to the cottage, determined that no evil would remain to harm unwary travelers. The priest said a prayer that he hoped would bring the spirits of the Rokurokubi eternal rest. This next one is called Dicey and Orpus, and it's an African-American traditional story from the United States. Back in the old days, there was a girl named Dicey who was born on a plantation. She was courted by a man named Jim Orpus, a wandering fiddle player who could make music like nobody else on earth. Stories went around that when he played a tune, rabbits would come out to dance and mules in the field would stop dead in the furrows and bray as if they were singing along. If you ever wanted a mess of fish, He'd just sit beside the creek and begin scratching away with his bow. Pretty soon, fish were leaping into the air and then flopping on the ground all around him. Then he'd set aside his fiddle, pick up what was needed, and throw the rest back. Now, Orpus was mighty sweet on Dicey from the moment that he first saw her. She was shy at first, but when he played a soft, sweet tune for her, she would sing along. If she didn't know the song, she'd sing whatever words his music brought to mind and Orpus seemed to like her made-up songs best of all. At first, she couldn't say how much she loved Orpus, but she sang her feelings clear enough, and soon enough, they were married, all proper and regular. Now all this happened so long ago that the railroad was a brand new, spick-and-span thing. Not knowing it was dangerous, Dicey sat down on the track one day waiting for Orpus, because she thought she heard him fiddling in the far, far away. But what she really heard was the engine whistle, and before anyone could do anything, the engine came whistling and roaring around the bend and smashed into the poor girl. After she was buried, Jim Orpus wept and wailed something terrible. He sat himself down on her grave, and he fiddled so sadly that folks for miles around thought their hearts were going to break. Then he grew angry because Dicey had been taken away so sudden-like, and he couldn't do a thing about it. He began to fiddle up such anger that the mountain shook and the trees splintered and the ground trembled and crumbled underneath him. Orpus tumbled down into a big old cave. He walked, and he walked through the darkness towards a speck of light. Finally, he reached the entrance to the land of the Golden Slipper, the place where all the good folks go when they die. When he got there, he found an angel who spread his wings and wouldn't let Jim Orpus pass. 
the angel said that only dead folk could go through the shining door into the land of the golden slipper. Then Orpus carried on something fierce, saying he just had to get his dicey back, or he might as well be dead. At first the angel wasn't having any part of this, but Orpus took up his fiddle and played such powerful sweet music that the angel began to weep and holler, and finally he said, Alright, I'll call Dicey here and you can lead her back the way you came, but you've got to be sure that you don't look back, not once, until you're both standing in the sunlight again. You're only going to get this one chance. Well, Orpus agreed to this. He'd have agreed to anything to get his sweet Dicey back. So the angel told him, Turn around, and don't you look back, or you will be sorry. The angel called Dicey's name, and pretty soon Jim Orpus heard her voice behind him, asking what was going on. Though he didn't dare look, he knew Dicey had seen him because she kept crying his name over and over and over again and clapping her hands excitedly. Orpus heard the angel say how she could go back with Orpus, provided he didn't once look back at her until they were both up top again. You go first, Jim, said Dicey. I'll follow. He was so happy to just be near her again, he almost turned around then and there. But he remembered what the angel had told him, so he kept looking ahead. Back they went the way that he had come, and all the while Orpus played a sweet tune and Dicey sang along with him. At last they reached the place where her grave had crumbled down. He was all set to climb out, but he was so eager to see her, and they were so close to the finish line, that his heart got the better of his head and he turned around. For just a second, he saw her sweet remembered face, and then she gave a terrible cry and vanished like a comet back into the dark. Dicey, Jim Orpus cried, and ran after her. But he couldn't spot the gleam that had led him to the Golden Gate earlier, and when he turned around, he couldn't see the place where the grave had crumbled. Not knowing what to do, he just began walking, calling Dicey's name over and over again, and playing his fiddle to ease his misery. The next day, when people looked for Jim Orpus, they didn't find him. Dirt had fallen into the big hole where Dicey's grave had been, and had been filled up. And nobody ever saw Jim Orpus again. But folks in those parts say that if you go into a cemetery where only black folk have been laid to rest, and press your ear to the ground, you can hear Jim Orpus's fiddle way down deep as he searches for Dicey, and the land of the Golden Slipper. As we wrap up our grand finale for this Halloween special, I want to extend a heartfelt thank you to each and every one of you, our dedicated listeners. You've stuck with us through 13 spine-tingling episodes today, and your support has been nothing short of incredible. As Halloween night is upon us, I want to wish you all a safe, spooky, and exceptionally eerie holiday. May your night be filled with treats, chills, and the company of fellow good-natured thrill-seekers. Our journey into the unknown has been a hauntingly good time, and it wouldn't have been the same without all of you. So from the depths of my spooky, haunted heart, thank you for making this Halloween special truly special. Stay curious, keep the unknown close, and may the spirits of the season continue to beckon. Until next time, which will be most likely in a couple of weeks, Stay spooky, and be sure to check back on the Anthology of Horror podcast. 
and Podcast Network. Check out Jerry's show, please. Demented Darkness. Alright, guys. Alright, guys. I am sleeping. Not sleeping yet. I am sleepy. And I am ending the show right now. Stay spooky. Hot summer streets and the pavements are burning us around. Trying to smile, but the air is so heavy and dry. It's a cruel, cruel summer. It's a cruel...